This is a Word Fitly Spoken. My words about reading the scriptures, about preaching the scriptures, and about the mission on which the scripture sends all of us. We here at A Word Fitly Spoken aim to give you, the servant of Christ, more and more always from the fullness the Lord has given us in His Holy Word. I'm Willie Grills, here as always with Zelwyn Heidi, and today we have with us the Reverend David Appled. Gentlemen, how are you? Doing well, Willie. Good to be back on with you and Zelwyn. How are you guys? I'm doing pretty well. We're enjoying some pretty nice, albeit a little bit dry weather, and uh, it's been nice and sunny and can't ask for better, really. Doing well here. You know, a little warm, very vibrant, but all in all, pretty good. Pretty good. Can't complain. So why have we gathered here today to, but to talk about Habakkuk, one of the minor prophets? Now, This is something that listeners have been asking for, some overviews, again, of the books, in particular, some of what could be considered more obscure books. Uh, They can't all be the Gospel of John. But Habakkuk is one of what are commonly called the Twelve. So guys, when we say the Twelve, we're not talking about the Twelve Apostles or the Twelve Tribes, but when we're referring to this collection of prophets, they are the Twelve. So so what are they? Yeah, well, you used it title or a term for them, the minor prophets. That's who we're talking about here. And by minor, we meet, we don't, I think they might even sometimes be called lesser prophets, but that gives you a bad idea in kind of the, the way that we understand those words as not as good as other prophets or yeah, just not as good as other prophets. The point is they have written shorter books. And so they're minor in the sense that they're shorter as opposed to Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. Those are the major prophets. Yeah, and the, they're called the Twelve because their books are so short that, I correct me if I'm wrong, but you could fit all of their writings together on a single standard scroll from those times. And so they're kind of all written together, right? Am I right in that? I think so. The What I remember hearing was that the if you compare like the word count in Isaiah, it's roughly equal to Jeremiah, which is roughly equal to Ezekiel. And that is roughly equal. I mean, we're sort of making stuff. It's almost like when you watch a baseball game and you get these obscure statistics, right? The word count in the book of the 12, if you took the word count of all 12 of these prophets, it's roughly equal to one of the major prophets. So yeah, it could fit on one scroll. But that doesn't mean that their themes and what they're proclaiming is somehow minor, which which is what you were trying to emphasize earlier. Just because they say it short and brief doesn't mean that they aren't bringing an important message. I mean, right? Yeah, I think <laughs> I think this is what a lot of people want from their pastors, right? Just say it short and sweet and to the point, right? <laughs> uh, don't don't go on for too long, just short to the point. And these guys are I mean, the classic example is Obadiah, right? How many verses are in Obadiah? 20 are there 20 verses even? But there's not there's not even more than one chapter in Obadiah. So we're, when we're talking about the minor prophets, these are all prophets, with maybe the exception of Zechariah, who you can sit down and read in 10, 15 minutes. Yeah, I think the of the of the minor prophets, I think the book with the do we get like 14 chapters in one book? Is that the largest of the minor prophets? Yeah, that's Zechariah. Amos might be might be long in length too. Yeah. But like you say, you know, 21 verses in Obadiah, that sort of thing. You know, it's really, it's kind of funny. We, 
you know, we have to kind of convince people to pick up these books because they're short. But realistically, there aren't too many books of the Bible you can't pick up and go through in an afternoon and read. I mean, you like you say, you could pick one of these guys up and read them very quickly. When reading the Bible, you don't have to pour over every jot and tittle necessarily. And you certainly don't need to have your concordance out there or your Hebrew parser or something like that and just pouring over things in that way. You can read it something devotionally or even recreationally and get through it rather quickly and cover a lot of ground. There's nothing necessarily wrong with reading the scriptures in that way. Yeah. And it's actually, it's actually beneficial, right? It's, I mean, it's good to do all of these different ways of reading the Bible, you know? Yeah. I mean, I guess that's a a better way to put it. It's not bad. It's actually good. (laughs) Well, but it's worth saying because the, I think the majority as a pastor, I, I fall into this, the majority of the way you read the scriptures is, okay, I'm going to be pulling apart this particular pericope for my sermon, as if the gospels were written in kind of pericopal fashion, which of course they weren't, right? It's written as the whole thing. It's easy to lose sight of the fact, even just in the way we chop up chapters, verses, and you know, a lot of people, okay, how am I going to read the Bible? I'll read a chapter a day. And you you make these you make pauses and you take breaks where it would be much more natural to just keep reading. So back to the 12 then. Let's go ahead and just list their names uh, for those wondering since it's, you know, there aren't too many of them. So first we have Hosea, Joel, Amos, right, Zelwin? Yes. <laughs> Obadiah, <laughs> Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. I would say Jonah or Zechariah, probably the most well-known among those. Agree or disagree with that one? We tell Jonah as a story to our to our children from a very early age. So, I mean, Jonah becomes very well-known. Zechariah be- probably becomes well-known just because, well, he's kind of got the strangest of the prophecies, <laughs> right. in a, to put it in a nutshell. But beyond, well, then probably like the ones who get quoted in the New Testament, you know, like Malachi or... Or any of those ones. So they do show up fairly frequently. Sure. So when we talk about a prophet, how do we define a prophet? What does a prophet do? I think when you when you think about a prophet, you want to go back to Moses and see Moses as the prototypical prophet. And uh, when you look at Moses, especially at the end of Deuteronomy, he's described as one who the Lord spoke with face to face. And the purpose of that speaking was so that then he would be the mouthpiece of the Lord. So he hears the word of the Lord, and then he speaks the word of the Lord to God's people, right? He goes up Mount Sinai, and and he doesn't just go up there and hear some grand vision, but he brings that word back down and speaks God's word to the people in that particular place and time. Now, all of the books deal with different contexts and different audiences, but they they kind of follow a general outline. You, gener- you generally have some kind of autobiographical material or biographical material describing who it is. That, how do we know who wrote these? Because they're usually attributed. That's very important for the authenticity of the books and their canonicity. The minor prophets are not disputed, really, in any way. I mean, you'll have certain modern scholars trying to dispute authorship and that sort of thing, but but they come into the Bible and are accepted, you know, rather easily from what we can see. So you've got the biographical material, and then you have these speeches from the prophets, and they take different forms, judgments, messages, even songs and psalms. So they're they're very interesting to read in that way. You're going to see the prophets as men, 
and how they are speaking God's word in these unique ways. Well, you also have them coming from very different backgrounds because the prophets didn't all live at the same time. Right. You have some who, I'm, I'm trying to think who the earliest of them would be. Jonah, maybe? Was Jonah the earliest of the of the twelve? I think so. Either Jonah or Amos. It depends on when you date Jonah, which is... Which is kind of debatable yeah. anyway. Yeah. But the point is, is that you have these guys writing over a period of several hundred years, and they're encountering Israel in very different circumstances and dealing with very different problems. But that doesn't mean that their message is necessarily different. It just means that they are trying to figure to bring God's word to a variety of situations that Israel finds themselves in. Yeah, which is a good point to make with with prophets. It's not that their concern is not only like a futuristic one, right? They're not just trying to predict the future or prophesy about something that's going to happen. You know, they don't know when, but 700, 600, 500 years from the time in which they, they speak, their concern is the present situation of Israel or Judah or Israel and Judah, or however they find God's people at that time, which we'll see, we'll talk about in Habakkuk. But it's worth, it's a good thing to point out, you know, Amos and Hosea, maybe Micah, all right when there's a unified kingdom. Is that right? Well, maybe I'm getting that wrong. Well, okay, so you'll have like Hosea, Obadiah, Jonah, it, it, like the early Assyrian period, right? Wouldn't that be when yeah. scholars would date them? But, but and of course, with your point there too, whenever they do predict the future, and we can't deny that the prophets actually do prophesy, I mean, that's the way we typically use the right. word, right? A prophecy is something coming in the future. Prophecies are always meant to be a sign of God's faithfulness. Be, you know, this is something that God is going to do in the future. And when you see it happen, then you will know that God is keeping his word right now. So it's not just predicting the future for the sake of, you know, just knowing what's going to happen, because we don't always know what's going to happen. Right. They're not mediums with crystal balls that are doing it kind of like as a trick. Yeah, exactly. Or as a novelty, right? They're doing it so that they can show that God is faithful in his promises and in his dealings with his people. So then, what's the benefit for us on this side of the resurrection, reading the Minor Prophets? I think what we're going to see, especially with Habakkuk, but the the situation of Israel is very, I think, very similar to the situation of the church now, right? In In almost all of the prophets, you have God's people are kind of scattered about in different ways. They're under different, they, they're facing different enemies without and within, and they're constantly tempted to fall away, or they're just in kind of total, almost rebellion from the Lord. I think that's what you that's what you find in Amos and I think in Micah too. And so there's this call to them to repent and return to the Lord. There's warnings about his judgment and his discipline that's coming on them because of their rebelliousness. I mean, that is very much the situation that we as Christians find ourselves in. Until Christ's final return, it's what? The church militant, right? And so there's always going to be, there's always going to be the need for warning. There's going to be the need for consoling and comforting people and strengthening in the faith because we haven't reached our goal yet. Sure. Yeah. Well said. So guys, with that said, in our overview of the 12 complete, shall we venture on into the book of Habakkuk. 
let's go. I don't, I, unless there's anything Zelwyn you want to touch on in the 12. I, one of the things I think we had, I'll ask Zelwyn a question and then answer it for myself. So, <laughs> so if we group these 12 together, is there a, does that mean that there's a unified theme among the 12? Yeah, I, I think, I think the, the, the most common theme that you're going to be dealing with among the 12 is dealing with the question of righteousness and what that means. Uh, God's people are acting sometimes in unrighteous ways, and that's showing up in the way that they're they're dealing with other people, in the way that they're carrying out their business, in the way that they're trying to you know live their lives. And unfortunately, that goes against what God wants them to do. And so this this contrast, this break between who they say they are and who they should be is something that I think is very instructive. I think that's probably going to be the most common of all of the themes of the prophets. Uh, one other thing that we'll see with Habakkuk too, there is a, because of where where we are kind of in the history of Israel, there is, I think, in the minor prophets, more of an interest in God's dealings with other nations. Now that's true. That's true in the major prophets too. I mean, Jeremiah has the whole section of like a chapter for each nation (laughs) at the end of his, at the end of his book. But I think in the minor prophets, you're starting to see the prophets and Israel kind of grappling with how the Lord is the Lord, not just of Israel, but across the board of all the nations and how he, how he holds them in his hand. Would you say that repentance and fidelity are two common themes that run through them. Yeah, I think so. I mean, that's, those are, that's like biblically common themes, right? (laughs) Yeah, that's that's everywhere, but there there isn't always this, you know. I mean, there's the the appealing to the fidelity of of God, but there's also this call for the people to be faithful to God and, or to repent, specifically depending upon that. And that's what a lot of these prophecies are going to do, is to try to shake up the people who hear them. No, that's a good. Now, can we define can we define repentance really quickly? Any any of you gents want a quick theological interview question and just want to define that off the cuff? Repentance. Repentance is. I'm not sure if you're like hunting for a certain response here, Willie, but it is the contrition which acknowledges sin and turns away from sin. There you go. No, it's good. Turn that. It's good. It's good to hear. It's good away to, from. It's good to remind. Turning towards the Lord. <laughs> yeah, you know we. I like to have everyone define the old words as often as we can with the old definitions because we used to know what words meant and and words used to mean something. But as we continue to take words and treat them as something malleable, you know, they change over time. I know the big brain guys out there are going to get me on that one. But as we take <laughs> words and pretend that, that in every instance, at every turn, they're malleable and they don't have that or, the, or that the church and the scriptures haven't defined a word in this way over the centuries and it's never you know had this meaning it's good to be reminded that biblical words have meanings and god intends them to have these specific meanings can you define what you mean by that willie <laughs> <laughs> but all all jokes aside though uh, david do you think that part of the these themes that you're seeing also comes from the fact that you said they, they all kind of come from a similar kind of time in, in Israel's history. And of course, that would be the time of the, the monarchy. Do you think that the, the failing of the monarchy has anything to do with that? Oh, that's a good question. I don't know. Yeah. You know, because you, you, have, you have David and he, you know, as faithful as he was, 
and you have Solomon, who is the height of the kingdom, but then begins this decline. And then, of course, now we're shooting towards the coming of the king, right? Yeah, no, I think I see what you're saying. There's so the the hopes prior to, or you know, the the height of David and Solomon is is in the past, and is in some ways a very a very distant past. And so there's this. Yeah, there's there's this question, I guess, that's coming up more and more of, well, what what's happened to us, and what what is the what's our hope? Our hope is, and what the prophets are trying to drive at is, your hope is to repent and to turn again to the Lord, and He'll send His salvation. Ultimately, like you're saying, Zelwyn, when He sends His Son, is that what you're getting? Is is that what you're getting mm-hmm. at? Yeah, I mean, I think so because. The the problem is, is they're continuously wanting to look back to the glory days, right? To say, we are the chosen ones, you know, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. God's not going to make us leave. (laughs) And so it doesn't really matter how we act because we are God's chosen people. But the prophets come in and say, no, God doesn't want your sacrifices. God doesn't want your, you know, the temple. What he wants is righteousness and holiness and purity and and standing before him because like you said your your hope is not in the past and in the land but in the lord your god all right with that we're going to take a quick break we'll be right back with more word fitly spoken If you like what you're hearing and want more, visit us at wordfitlyspoken.org. There you'll find our blog with lots of interesting articles, exegesis, sermon prep, and history. www.wordfitlyspoken.org. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. Willie Grills, Zoe Heidi, David Appled, talking about the book of Habakkuk. Of Habakkuk. As promised, we are actually going to get into the book now. Now, would you say there's a central theme to the book of Habakkuk? You can take the standard Christian line if you want to, as we are all Christians. <laughs> I'd say that the that the central theme is how God's judgment is going to work out. Okay, I was expecting the just shall live by faith, but we'll go with that one. Yeah, well, for the just, for those who live <laughs> no. by faith, God's judgment works out. <laughs> no, very, yeah, very good. So we talked a little bit about the background. Is there anything else you want to add to the background of the book here? I think it's important to get the historical background right. You you mentioned before that usually in the prophets you get a little biographical detail in the major prophets, you get the actual account of their calling. Not so in Habakkuk, you just kind of jump right in. This is the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. That's the only introduction. And so you got to understand a little bit of the historical background here. He's prophesying at a time right before the, the Babylonian captivity. We don't have an exact year given, but it's probably before, it's probably sometime in like I think the date that I've often heard is 605 BC. Zelwyn, is that is that important? No, that seems fair. Yeah. Okay, like so that. for the listeners, let's describe then because that's significant before the Babylonian captivity. So what's what is going to happen with the Babylonian captivity? Yeah. So this is 
this is actually a time when there's many prophets who are active in this time. Jeremiah is the major figure here. Ezekiel, I think, is going to come a little bit after Habakkuk. But you have Judah. Israel is long gone, scattered by the Assyrians, and you had their importing of all the different tribes up there in the north. So you have only Judah and whatever remnant of Benjamin stayed around in Judah. But you have the long succession of wicked kings. Finally, King Josiah, I think 640 to 609, has some kind of reform. But from Habakkuk, we see that Josiah's reform, as good as it was, didn't really fix things, if I can put it that way. And so now the Lord is is bringing the Babylonians to be his instrument of discipline on his people. We're going to teach them teach them what happens when you rebel against the Lord. Yeah, if, if Josiah's reforms did anything, they delayed the inevitable. Yeah, it's a good way of putting it. We're going to patch the dam up for a little bit, but, you know, they didn't use good labor, so we're going to, because it's, a, you know, the, the rot's already there. Yeah, no, just, uh, that doesn't mean that Josiah's reform wasn't good. It just means that because of that reform, God, in his providence, chose to delay the judgment that was going to right, come. Right, that was, that was going to come. No matter what, right? <laughs> and the so the Babylonians, the the way it works out, they they kind of come in in three stages. There's a first. There's an initial. They come to Jerusalem. I think this is in 605. Is their initial coming to Jerusalem, and basically they're they're not in a, any big rush to like take over or to burn anything down. They want what most what most of the ancient world wanted, which was tribute and fidelity to them. And then they come again in five, I think, 97, and they carry out a little more actually taking away people. This, I think, is where you get Ezekiel, 597. And then the final time when they come, Nebuchadnezzar comes and he burns Jerusalem entirely down to the ground because they have been unfaithful to their Chaldean or Babylonian overlords. But that's all That's all in the future for Habakkuk, right? For Habakkuk, None of that has happened. It's it's what he's going to see here, but it hasn't taken place yet. Yeah. So what's going on with Habakkuk then? You know, he's going to he's going to start referencing something and some things. What does his context look like then? Does it, is it a corrupt Israel? Is it is he benefiting from reform here? Is there going to be a rise in advance of some people against Israel? You know, what, what what's at play? I think what he and what he voices here in the first couple couple of verses of his prophecy is the is the just seems like total corruption so he has this description in verse 4 the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth from the king down to the lowest person he looks around and it is darkness right he is he is black pilled entirely there's nothing good yeah and this and this is kind of what i was hinting at a little bit before the break that Throughout the prophets, you have this very common refrain of the people are not doing the law. They are not seeking after the Lord, their God, and they are just trying to fill their own bellies. And so, yeah, so the, the law is paralyzed. Justice never goes forth. The wicked surround the righteous. And so justice goes forth perverted. I'd say we're, yeah, we are dealing with an Israel that is largely corrupted, that is refusing to see what is right in front of them. And it is as clear as day if they would just open their eyes but they don't want to see. They're hardening their hearts. 
Right. Even even and it's you know even when they are still going to be regularly hearing the law preached, the word of God preached, they're choosing to ignore. They know the will of God, but they willfully choose to ignore. So they need to be awoken from their slumber. And hence the book, right? Yeah, he and he's crying out for God to do something about this. And he's I don't think he's I think he wants God's judgment to come. Don't you? I mean, this is similar to Amos when Amos calls for justice to come down like waterfalls. He wants God's judgment to come to correct. Yeah. And and you know, I think that we we look at this these calls for judgment even kind of like with the imprecatory psalms as well. We think of justice and judgment is our own personal justice and our own personal judgment. So to ask that justice be served is always seen as some kind of selfish impulse, the way we discuss it a lot in our time. It's hard for us to wrap our mind around the concept of someone being so devoted to the Lord that when the Lord is grieved, the disciple is grieved as well. And that's what's at play with the prophets here. That to see his master sinned against causes him great anguish and righteous anger. And that's a concept that either we don't understand or don't want to accept, but it is a biblical concept. I think you, you're bringing up the imprecatory Psalms there really drives home the point because sometimes you hear people say, well, we can't pray the imprecatory Psalms because it sounds like we're just trying to call down God's judgment. We're just trying to get our own way but that's not at all what it's about. When when we do pray the imprecatory psalms, we are looking for the justice of God. Because when God comes in justice to judge the nations and to bring about the rec- his recompense, his vengeance, he does so to set all things right again. So this is God's justice, God's judgment that Habakkuk is looking for. And that can only be for his people's benefit never for their detriment. You know, let's let's take a minute then and talk about justice and what justice means. That's very much a loaded word today. Everybody gets <laughs> We're, quiet. No. Yeah, I know. <laughs> we, we don't want to be social justice warriors. Is that what you're getting at here or what? No, I'm, I'm not putting words in anyone's mouth. And we know that David's a proud social justice warrior. <laughs> yeah, so maybe he would like to. Someone. I'm sorry. I, I, I repent. And <laughs> David's apologize. triggered. It's not true. Um, I, I just microaggressed the Reverend Apple, and I'm sorry. <laughs> well, look look at how Habakkuk says it. And I think the way you described it is perfect, Willie. Habakkuk is not, we, we don't know. I mean, I'm sure he's suffering personally in some way, living in this, in Judah at this time. But we don't have the impression that he's like out for any kind of personal gain, right? There's no There's no evidence of that at all. What he looks around and says is that God's law, and God's justice are not going forward. And that therefore affects everyone. That affects the whole society. So in Israel, the standard for justice is not is is nothing within the individual Israelite. The standard is what God has revealed in his law. And if that is being observed, then there's justice. And if it's not, then there's injustice, right? Um, it's not a matter of I feel oppressed or I feel personally taken advantage of, or I feel victimized in some way, there's this standard of justice, and that's God's law. So let's talk about that then. What what would that look like? What, what, what would be happening in this context? And we'll look at some other context and God's will and justice. But in an Old Testament context, what are some situations where justice is not being served? And you don't have to use 
you know, an example from Habakkuk necessarily, but but just think of different events and judgments that befall people in the Bible. Well, the a couple of the the big early ones you can think of Korah's rebellion. So you have the kind of injustice. I, I don't know if this qualifies as injustice, but Korah wants to lead a rebellion against Moses. So the the refusal to follow the assigned leaders or the refusal to acknowledge those who the Lord has put in authority is quickly a cause for God's judgment to come. Okay, that's a good one. Zelwyn? Well, I mean, we talked about this quite a while ago when we were talking about Jude, uh, but you have the example of Sodom and Gomorrah. And Ezekiel tells us very specifically that among their many sins, they were also dealing very inhospitably with their neighbors, which I think is an understatement considering (laughs) their overall sin. But I think that just actually proves the point because they had gone astray in that one particular point with their, well, I mean, to put it none too fine a point on it, their sodomy, everything else had also gone astray. The sin had introduced injustice as a way of life. And so it characterized their whole life in their whole society. And as a result, God brought his his justice down upon them when he rained fire upon those yeah, cities. See, that's the thing. We, we tend to think of, ju- again, back to this idea of justice as personal rather than justice being kind of a communal judgment. And two, the standard for what is just is always seen as some kind of individual choice, right? So if, if something's personal, you know, if it's not a quote unquote victimless crime, then where's the injustice? Well, mm-hmm. the injustice is the sin against God. And in all of these things, what do you have? Someone who seeks to subvert the will of God. There is no law that supersedes the will of God. And the only just laws in the world are the ones which affirm and acknowledge God's law. Apart from that, it is an unjust law, or at, at least an unnecessary law. And and that's good because it, it takes it out of, it. it's not just the legal dimension of life in Judah that was unjust. Although I'm sure there was. I'm sure there were bribes and the innocent were being were not receiving the judgments that they should have received and the guilty were going free. We have that witnessed in other prophets. But this is also something that's taking place within families. When the children disrespect their elders, their parents, think of the way Jesus talks about the the Pharisees in the New Testament. They devour widows' property. And that's a great example of an unjust practice that's not related to the judicial system. It's just part of the life at that time. Yeah. And here, you know, God's law as basis for society is kind of a given in Israel, even when they disobey it. But I mean, it's still kind of presupposed. We don't have that today. You had it in the Jewish community of Jesus day, but certainly not in the Roman community. Now, ought we to think of the law in the same way as an Old Testament prophet would, or as Moses would, or I mean, I mean Moses is a prophet, so as Moses would, or one of the minor prophets, is it right for us to conceptualize God's law as normative? Recognizing, of course, that there are distinctions between moral, civil, and ceremonial laws, but just the law in general. How should we conceptualize that as Christians, as people who acknowledge a living God, who has revealed himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and who currently reigns on high forever. Is this a loaded question? <laughs> no, I'm just like, see, I don't want to put, yeah, not to no, put too right. fine a point it's on a it. Great, 
Well, it's, you know, <laughs> even when you're thinking about like the civil, the civil laws in the Old Testament, okay, what, what's the purpose of those for us now? I think that's part of what your question's getting at. Do they have any significance for us? We don't live in old Israel. So we live in America. What what does this have to do with us? Well, I think it, it at least serves as a model for our civil laws, but especially within the church. Yeah, the God's law is definitive for all of life. Well, even the ceremonial laws, which we are very quick to jettison. I like my shrimp. <laughs> I like my shrimp. <laughs> you know, it, I want to wear into. I want to worship the way I want to and stuff my face <laughs> whatever I want to. I, I want to wear two different kinds of clothing. I want you know, to put sort of two thing. different seeds in my field. <laughs> but, but, but when we do that and when we mischaracterize the purpose of the ceremonial law, then we aren't going to see any purpose in it. But we do see a purpose in the ceremonial laws because they teach us something about what it means to be Christians. Not in their observance, like we have to not eat shrimp and that's what makes us Christians, but in that we have been set apart in the world. We are different from the world. And the ceremonial laws emphasize that point in a way, in a very concrete way. And they also point forward to being set apart in Jesus, because that's ultimately what they're driving towards, is towards Christ you know, himself. And, and if we think about the ceremonial law as disciplines, that might put more of a Christian spin on it. That might be a little more, more easy for us to relate to. There are Christian disciplines, fasting, prayer, you know, scheduled things that we do freedom in the gospel, but there are things that Christians ought to be doing or that are very beneficial for the Christian that God has willed for us to do and really for our practical good in many ways. It's like we're all, actually, we're all raising boys uh, now that I think about it. You could probably afford to feed your kid a bunch of candy every day. Yeah, sure. You guys both. You could. Sure. You could do it. There's nothing really saying that you can't. This is America after all. And, you know, if you can't afford it, <laughs> Put it on your credit card. But you throw a bag of Dum Dum Pops in the kid you know, every day. What's going to happen to him? He's going to get irritable, fat, and disobedient. Why? Well, because you've, you've just given this to him. But we don't. We tell our kids, hey, you're not going to do that. Even when they whine, we're going to go, no, you're going to have to eat vegetables. Okay, you're going to have to eat healthy. No, you're going to have to go outside and run around a little bit. Okay, you're going to have to get some sun. You can't just sit in and watch cartoons all day. Now, why do we do this? And I realize I'm getting a little far afield from the setting apart point, which is absolutely the primary focus of the law. So Zelwyn's absolutely right. But this disciplinary act, okay, which enables us to live in a better way. And the Christian way, and I sound like a total Methodist, but the Christian way is that better way because it draws us closer to God and keeps us ever close to God. And the law serves that function too in the Old Testament especially, these laws which are separating them from the world are keeping them near to God. Sometimes quite literally and physically near to God in the case of the Exodus, right? And in case in the case of the temple. But that's the purpose of, of these civil and ceremonial laws. And that's kind of the purpose of Christian discipline here today. You guys are free to disagree. You know, if you want to bant a little bit about that, that'd be great. But what are your thoughts on that? No, I, I mean, that was that was kind of what I was driving at was is that, you know, being set apart by the law, being set apart as Christians means that we're seeking after the things of God to seek after the law of God and maybe just kind of draw it back towards Habakkuk a little bit. This is exactly what they weren't doing. They had become worldly. They had become 
undisciplined, if you will, and therefore they were straying away from God's law. Right. They had they had perverted God's justice, and now we're going to see the reaction of that on the other side of the break. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. We'll be back in just a few moments. A Word Fitly Spoken proclaims Jesus Christ in all His fullness from in-depth exploration of Holy Scripture and study of how God's Word has borne fruit throughout church history. Come along with us at wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or on Twitter at wordfitly. We're back with more Word Fitly Spoken. Willie Grill, Zelwyn Heidi, David Appled here talking about Habakkuk. Gentlemen, let's jump right back into the book after, you know, I dragged our boat way far from the shore in the last segment. And let's take a look at Habakkuk. Have at it, guys. Well, it's important. It, it, it's a digression, but it's you got to have it because otherwise you don't you don't understand what Habakkuk's concern is and why the Lord is going to answer his prayer. So Habakkuk is praying for God's justice to come forth. And the Lord says, yeah, watch and watch and see the the way that he answers Habakkuk's prayer, which is the common prayer in the Psalm. How long, how long, O Lord, is just wait and see. It's it's soon. And he's going to send he says, I'm going to raise up the Chaldeans for this specific purpose. The Chaldeans are often a, a word used synonymously with the Babylonians. I think they were one of the subgroups that made up the Babylonian empire, but probably the biggest one. Anyways, they're the ones who are who are going to be his tool by which he's going to discipline Judah for all of this rebelliousness. Yeah, and and he describes it in very vivid detail. I mean, he says their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on, they come from afar, they come for violence. Kings, they scoff at rulers, they laugh. They have been raised up to destroy. That's their sole purpose. And God is using this tool in in his hand to chastise his people. And remember, remember the Babylonians, are they're coming off of the destruction of Assyria, who, <laughs> who themselves were a warlike people and a very strong military empire. So the Babylonians are... I mean, yeah, they were bred for this purpose. (laughs) That's one way to put it. (laughs) So, I mean, but then you have to ask the question, David, how does God use such a horrible group of people to do his will? Which is Habakkuk's question, right? Habakkuk goes on, you know, he's going to say, are you not from everlasting? O Lord, my God, my Holy One, we shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. So, Okay, he acknowledges that this is what the Babylonians are. They're not some kind of random rogue nation, but they're actually sent by God for this specific purpose. But then he goes on to to say, Habakkuk does, You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? So even though Habakkuk has just in the in the opening verses has given his lament that there is no 
justice in in Judah. <laughs> now he sees the Babylonians. And he says, well, by comparison, maybe we're a little bit better. How can this wicked nation, this idolatrous nation, how can they be the ones who are going to discipline us? And this makes sense to us too, right? If someone's going to discipline me, I would usually be offended if I thought I was better than that person, right? If there's, if it's an authoritative figure who's coming, this is the benefit of, of, of having an actual fatherly person who can come, who can come to you, who you acknowledge. Yeah, that's, that's one thing to accept discipline from them, but to accept discipline from someone who you view as inferior to you is a a real tough pill to swallow. But that's, that's what the Lord has willed here. And so his answer to Habakkuk is not going to take that away or to take that stumbling block away, but he's going to say, look, this is my, this is my choice to make Habakkuk. And he is going to go on to say, and don't worry, I'm going to judge the Chaldeans too. It's not like they get off kind of scot-free. Well, before we get on to the judgment of the, of the Chaldeans, we do have to emphasize that the Lord using the Chaldeans in this way to judge his people is perfectly within his ability to do so. I mean, he uses man to punish man because that is what he has ordained. Yeah, it's not a new pattern by any means. It's nothing, <laughs> nothing unique to Habakkuk. I, I mean, even, even from the days of Noah and with the covenant of Noah, when he says, you know, by, by, if you shed the blood of man, by man shall your blood be shed. So to use one man to punish another is certainly within God's will and how God works in the world. But he uses the Chaldeans specifically to chastise, but not to crush completely. I think that's kind of what maybe Habakkuk is worried about, that they're going to be swept away in the judgment and they will be no more. And this is maybe what Israel fears, being taken out of the land as if they are being taken away from God. But God says, no, you have to suffer this judgment because it is for your good. And, and I think the, the use, especially the use of an idolatrous nation, is actually, this is a tool that the Lord uses to show them how far they have fallen, right? He doesn't send a righteous whole, as if he had another people. He only has Judah, and, and they have fallen into such unrighteousness that he has to use this unrighteous tool on them to actually straighten them out or to, or to teach them, to, to bring them back to himself is probably the best way to put it. Yeah, the and the description of of Babylon here is great of this always devouring and never being satisfied. Great in kind of its in in its fearsomeness. He talks about it in terms of a man going fishing. Babylon is this fisherman who's just constantly catching more and more and more and emptying his net, and he's going to destroy him forever. And you're right, that's what Habakkuk in the very last verse of one, is he, meaning Babylon, then to go keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? Is there going to be no end to your discipline, God? Are you sending these Babylonians on us forever? Or is there going to be a day when we are set free from them? Yeah. And this is where then what you were getting at, part of his answer being, there will be an end to the the judgment that is coming upon you. It is not forever because I, the Lord, am faithful and I, the Lord, am holy. And that's where we get into the second half of chapter two, starting around verse six, where he actually speaks a direct woe against 
the Babylonians against the Chaldeans and saying, you are, the, you've destroyed everything, but you yourselves will also be destroyed because the Lord is the one who is in the midst of his people. Well, actually, I think uh, the very end of chapter two is such a beautiful way of talking about all of this. This would be 220. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. The Lord is going to do what he will do because he is the Lord. Yeah, and, and Habakkuk's concern is a valid one. Don't don't you see their evil God? Don't you see that they are in that they that they worship idols? They worship the God. I think the chief Babylonian god is Marduk or Bel. It's ref, he's referred to as Bel in Jeremiah. Bel's like a, is like the gen, a general word for a Babylonian okay. deity, or it's like so like Lord, like Lord Marduk. Gotcha. Would be like Bel Marduk. But but they're pantheistic, right? I mean, they they may worship him more than the other gods, but they they've got all kinds of gods. And the Lord God of Israel sees all of this. It doesn't. It's not unknown to him. And he not only does he see it, but he he he's the judge of all these things. And so even though he's using them against his people, he also will stand as the judge over Babylon too. With all of this, then, how does that apply to our own time? in our own day? How can we take comfort of knowing that God is, well, sovereign, if you want to use that language, which is a good word, and that even if we ourselves are chastised by, well, what we might be considered to be an unrighteous nation in some, in you know, through the world or whatever, how does that help us as Christians? How does this speak to us today, David? Yeah, I think that the, that God's, God's rule extending over all things is, is being emphasized in Habakkuk here. And here is where you get the great verse that most of our listeners will know from Habakkuk, hopefully by memory, the just shall live by faith. If we didn't have that promise, then we would, we would probably fall into despair, right? If, if all we had was the emphasis of God's transcendence of his sovereignty over all things, over all nations, and he, that he sees all things, he's in his temple and he sees all things, it it pretty quickly turned into despair. There'd be fear, and that fear would give way to despair when you actually consider your own life. But because there is this promise that uh, though he sees all things and is the judge of all things, he he does watch over his faithful people. And by faith, not necessarily by works, but by faith, our justice will be brought forth, and we will be saved from his final judgment. Yeah, because I mean, this this of course is important is an important citation in the in the book of Romans as well. What is that? Romans one, verse. Help me out, Willie. Verse seventeen. Is that right? Cut me off guard. Yeah, <laughs> I thought you had this all memorized. <laughs> yeah, so we have from Romans. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And I've got to redeem myself. Also, Paul in Galatians 3.11, no one is justified before God by the law because the just will live by faith. And and Paul, yes, Paul, Hebrews 10, my righteous will live by faith. I think yeah. if I can go back to your, uh, if you want to keep going on that, Zelwin, go ahead. But uh, you're asking about uh, taking Habakkuk to your own life. It's important to remember that that this prophecy is spoken against the enemies of Israel. 
or against the enemies of faithful Israel, right? Babylon, they're the, the disciplinary tool of the Lord. But when he brings them down, when he, when he finally throws down Babylon with the Medes and the Persians, and you get this in the book of Daniel, that is a reason for joy for the faithful, that the enemies of his people don't have the final say, right? That evil and wickedness are actually going to be cast down and will not go on forever. Well, I mean, isn't that kind of Paul's point too in citing it in the book of Romans? Because I mean, Romans 1 comes right at the beginning of that important section talking about uh, the sinfulness of man and the what it means for all men to be sinners before the all-holy God. And so before his righteousness, that is God's righteousness, no one is able to stand, just like the Babylonians and the, the Medes and the Persians. But it is the righteous by faith who are able to stand before the Lord because of that faith. And when we're in the midst of suffering, like the Israelites did, when we're in the midst of dealing with the hostility of the sinful world, even if we are being judged as sinners, yet we will still trust in the Lord our God because he is faithful and he is holy and he has given us life by faith. Yeah, I think it's I think it's right on with Habakkuk because look at chapter three. Now you have, we didn't do this before, but the outline of Habakkuk, you have Habakkuk, his lament, the Lord's response. Then you have Habakkuk's question about, well, how can the Chaldeans be the one who are going to discipline us? Then chapter two is the Lord's response to that question. And chapter three then is Habakkuk's final kind of word here. And it's a psalm. It, it looks very much like a psalm, even with this superscription, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to Shigianoth, which we won't go into that right now, but that sounds a lot like a psalm, right? And then he, it's a psalm of praise that praises God's power, God's majesty, and his authority, his, his might to put down the wicked, put down the enemies. But he has this great little prayer in here, right at the beginning in verse 2, O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. What's the report he's heard? He's heard about the coming judgment on both Judah and on Babylon. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. And he has this promise that that the Lord will remember his mercy, that this won't be an eternal judgment. It's a it's a chastening, it's a yeah, it's a discipline, but it's not eternal. Well and I think even even more to that point is the very end of this psalm where he says, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Even all of that having happened, he says, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. So even in the midst of all of those awful things that were happening, he is going to trust in God because he knows that it is for his good, it is discipline, and he knows that it is not forever. Though weeping may, may come with the night, may tarry for the night, joy will certainly come with the morning. There I'm doing a little Psalms posting. So And you can you can see here how how the book of Habakkuk itself, and we maybe this is a good place to go in, at the end here. This particular 
judgment on Judah at that time is typical of the way that God judges his people throughout time. And so it quickly gives way or it it gives rise anyways to this eternal perspective of throughout our life we don't look for the temp- we don't look for a temporary vindication right our hope is in that eternal vindication of the resurrection and the life of the world to come yeah absolutely and that is the the faith that we have that living in that faith and that is that is something that we can look forward to and i think with with habakkuk here the acceptance of god's discipline the accept because he had these questions originally how long o oh lord do we have to wait for your justice to come and then <laughs> once god tells him the answer to that there's another question that comes up well how can it be this particular nation that you're going to use to to discipline us but then at the end this is this is a very different tone that habakkuk takes at the end there's no more questions there's the acceptance of these things and he submits himself to god's will and and gladly can accept it. Uh, is he glad here that that the vine is withered? Probably he's not glad that these things have come, but he knows how to bear patiently the Lord's discipline. All right. Well, it's been a good discussion of Habakkuk. Any final words, guys? I think one thing that we should emphasize at the end of this too is that we see God's fulfillment of you know this this bringing judgment upon the nations and all of these things. Uh, particularly in his son, Jesus Christ. Because when Jesus takes all of these things, takes our judgment upon himself, he is setting all things right. And he is the one who is going to actually bear all of all of our sins upon himself so that we are able to live by faith. So we, when we look forward to the coming day of the Lord, we're not just looking for an abstract justice of some kind, as if God was just going to do this abstractly. But God brings justice in his son. And I think that's something that we should emphasize. Very good stuff. The the final thing here I would say as you read Habakkuk, and I hope our listeners do, like we said before, it's it's pretty short. God's salvation comes through this judgment, right? You You can't have salvation apart from that judgment. And so the wickedness, the evil has to be put down so that God's righteousness can come forth. And he's going to do it. Right? He's going to put an end to evil, and he's going to make his righteousness shine like the sun. And by faith, we'll be there to see it all. Very good. Thank you, gentlemen. This has been a Word Fitly Spoken. If you like what you heard and you want more, check us out, wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or check us out on Twitter at wordfitly. I'm Willie Grills. God love you, and God bless.